in honor of the yard site of Reb Chaim Velazhener. So here, Yehuda Geber with Jewish History Sound Bites podcasts will talk a little bit about Reb Chaim Velazhener, a certain aspect of his. Reb Chaim Velazhener, of course, came from Velazhen. His name was Reb Chaim Itzkovich, but no one ever calls him Reb Chaim Itzkovich. They call him instead of Chaim Velazhener, which was quite common at the time. And he is uh, well-known and famous as one of the greatest uh, Jewish leaders in modern times. And there's really so many aspects of his life that we're obviously not going to be able to cover all of it. We'll focus on one aspect. There's, um, there's so much about him. He was, of course, a major Talmud of the Vilna Gain, but he was before that a Talmud of Rabbi Fal Hakayan, who was later a Rav in, in Hamburg, he also was a Talmud and learned with the Shagas Aryeh, Rabbi Yaleb Ginsberg, who was the rabbi in Valazhen. Um, in fact, that there's a, a legend associated with that relationship. In fact, there's quite a few legends associated with Rabbi Chaim Valazhener. He seems to have attracted legends, uh, like many other uh, great rabbis. And... Um, the Litvish um, non-Hasidic Gedele Yisrael seems to have attracted no less legends than their Hasidic Rebbe counterparts. There's a legend even with Napoleon, that Napoleon on his Russia campaign met up with Reb Chaim So once you have exciting things like Napoleon knocking on Reb Chaim door, anything can really happen. So there's another one, which this story actually might have happened. I haven't been 100% able to verify the source, but it's not only possible, um, but it involves his, his relationship with the Shagasarye. He, he There was a certain kula, a certain leniency that the Shagasarye relied on in regards to Hilchis Trefis, which I definitely don't know, so I can't elaborate on what the kula was. But... Um, but there was some kula that none of the other Paiskim relied on that a certain type of trefa is really kosher. And the Shagasarye did, did rely on it. He held that it was kosher in spite of the fact that most of the other Paiskim um, were, were machmir and held that you're not allowed to eat the chicken if it had this type of trefa. So when Rebchaim um, Valazhin later on in life becomes the rabbi in Valazhin, there was a fellow who was sick and he came to ask, seek advice um, from the rabbi because the doctors had given up hope. He was very sick, and Reb Chaim inquired of him as to what his illness was, and he described it that it's some lung disease. And and upon further inquiry, the Reb Chaim discovered that what was wrong with his lungs was exactly this trefa that the Shagas Aryeh believed in a chicken, of course, in an animal, in a, in a cow, whatever it was, is kosher. And all the other Paiskim um, believed that it was not kosher. So Reb Chaim Velazhener says to him, stay in Velazhen. Why? Because a trefa means that you can't live. That's the idea of a trefa in halacha. A trefa is not able to live long term. That's basically why it's not kosher without getting into it. Um, not because we don't have time, but because I don't know, and I hate to admit when I don't know something. But either way, Reb Chaim Velazhener said to him, if the Shagas believed that the animal is kosher with this type of trefa, that means he believed that the animal can live. 
And that means that according to the Shagas Aryeh, this type of trefa does not mean you won't live. So you live in Valajan. The Shagas Aryeh was the Rav here. Stay in Valajan. And therefore, you'll be able to live because you're in the place where the Shagas Aryeh rules, his Psak rules. And uh, this is not a trefa. This is not something you can't live with. And so the story goes that this person never left the city of Valajan after that. And he lived many long and happy and healthy years as a result. So that's an association with the Shagas Aryeh. Now, he's also major Talmud of the Vilna Gain. If we examine all the aspects of the Reb Chaim Valajaner's life, we already mentioned he's a Talmud of the Vilna Gain. He was the rabbi of the town of Valajan. He was a tremendous Makubal, big, huge in Kabbalah. He was uh, in one of the people in charge of the administrative end of the big Aliyah of the Talmide Hagra to Eretz Yisrael. And he organized the support, the financial support system of the Talmide Hagra, the Prushim in Eretz Yisrael through the organization called the Reisne Vilna. And through that he would fundraise and funnel the support for those Talmidim of the Vilna going living in first in Tveria and Svas and later on in Yerushalayim. He was also later on recognized as the Gadol Hadar, as the greatest leader in the Lithuanian Jewish Torah world. He was the author of the Sfarim, Nefesh HaChaim, Ruach Chaim and Pirchiyavis, and other Sfarim. And the main principal reason he's remembered through history, his greatest legacy, was that he founded and ran and was the Shashiva of the Valajan Yeshiva for the last 19 or 20 years of his life. Um, but there's really another aspect which I want to talk about, which kind of touches on a lot of the other things that we mentioned. Um, and that is his opposition and his isnagdus to Hasidus, the Hasidic movement of his day, which was very, very different than the way his own Rebbe, the Vilna Gain, opposed Hasidim. And it was a whole different approach, and it was a new approach. And in later generations, it would seem that his approach was the one that stood the test of time and even after the Vilna Gain's approach, which was much more severe, did not really sustain itself um, for a long time at all, and it was ended, which we'll go into in a second. Yuchayim um, Velazhener, he, he never signs on any of the cheirims against Hasidim. There's this 30-year period starting in 1772 and lasting till 1804, that's 32 years, um, where is the principal time where there's a violent opposition called the Hisnagdus to the Hasidic movement. There's these cheirims that are signed, and it's a whole story in itself, which we'll get to at some point. Very interesting and fascinating story, um, where the Vilna Gain spearheaded, initiated, and followed through. Probably it came all from his initiative. There's a huge dispute amongst researchers till today if the Gain went along with the people who were doing it and he added his signature and the weight of his personality, or was the Vilna Gain actually the one who initiated it? We're not getting it into, into that now. That's for a different topic. And basically the goal of that war was to, was to get rid of the Hasidim. And we're not going to get into why exactly now. It's again a different topic. But in 1804 that ends. And the reason it ends is for two reasons. First of all, several years earlier, in 1798, six years earlier, the Vilna Gain passed away. He died. And once the spirit of the movement was gone, it could always, you could always schlep along with the memory of the Vilna Gain 
for another few years, but there's a limit how much you can capitalize on the Vilna Gaon's memory to continue a full-out, full-blown war. And the second and very important reason is, is because in 1804, the Tsarist government in Russia changed the law and legally recognized the Hasidic communities as an official Jewish community. It gave them the legal right to run their own minyanim with their own davening and their own shuls. And once that was made legal, then, then that changed the whole situation. Now the Jewish communities could not get rid of them. They were legally recognized by the state. They could not tattletale on them to the Tsarist government, which had been a pretty successful maneuver until that point. And therefore the Misnagdim were left with accepting the reality that the Hasidim were not only around, they were strong enough, they were successful, and they were also still spreading. They were very, very much spreading as a movement. And they, that was, that accept the reality. We very often think and minimize in, in Jewish history the, the players on the outside, on the fringes of Jewish history, the non-Jewish governments and the uh, geopolitical events of the time. We tend to think of everything as internal, in between in, internal Jewish uh, issues that are solved by internal Jewish measures. And most often that's not the case. There's very much an influence from the outside world, especially a ruling government. We live in the exile, we live in Gullus, and uh, therefore the ruling governments of the day have a tremendous influence on internal Jewish affairs um, um, uh, at various different points in Jewish history. And the 1804 proclamation of the Tsar's government rec- legally recognizing the Hasidic movement and their right to have their own minion is definitely a watershed uh, moment in the history of the Jews of Eastern Europe, in the history of Hasidus, in the history of the Hisnagdus to Hasidus, and many other things as well. There's a lot of ramifications for that. That's for perhaps also another time. Now, so the Reb Chaim comes into that stage. He's, he's, he's living in that world. And he's looking at a reality. And let's examine the reality that Reb Chaim is looking at. Number one, an ideological reality. The Hasidus presents a new value system. Traditionally, in Rechaim Elezhner's conservative world, where he comes from as the Talmud of the Vilna Gain for sure, but in general in that traditional rabbinic world that he's in, Torah study and Torah elitism, the Talmudic Chachamim, are the top of the hierarchy of Jewish society. That's it, Torah as a value, study of Torah as a value. And here Hasidus says, there are other values too, not just Torah, there are other values Tveikis, davening, other avaydas, the tzaddik, connecting to the tzaddik. We're not going to get into the whole chasidus now, that's a topic in itself. But there's other values as a direct result of that first point. There's a second point. The status of the big loimdim, of the big learners, of the talmidich hachamim, of the rabbonim in society, is not as high as it used to be. The third point is, and it makes it even worse, is that chasidus was very attractive when it became a mass movement. From the 17... starts a little bit in the 1760s, really when the 1770s and on, and, and on, excuse me, it becomes a mass movement. It starts to attract the best and the brightest of Eastern European Jewish society. Young, bright kids are from the best families. It was like, you know, if there was an Agoda convention in those days, they would talk about the... Uh, the at-risk kids and what to do about them. And have all the big bechanchim get up and have a panel discussion about what to do about all these kids who are being swept up by Hasidus and what are we going to do about it? Maybe Hasidus was the solution. 
but we're not going to get into that either. Either way, the, the, it happens in all the vast albums. We have it recorded of people, even by the Talmudim of the Vilna Gaon himself, some of their kids, they went off and they joined the Hasidic movement. That's another thing. So now they're, they're, the ranks are being drained by this spreading movement. And the fourth point is completely unrelated. It's totally from a different angle. Is the collapse of the Kehillah system. The, the collapse of the Kehillah, specifically the collapse of the Kehillah, the yeshiva, the yeshivas of the Kehillah's system. And traditionally, throughout the history of Ashkenaz and in Poland, up till the 17th century, every single large kahila sustained the yeshiva as part of the community budget to have a local yeshiva where the rabbi of the community was the Rosh Yeshiva in the history of yeshivas. This is a fascinating chapter, a very important chapter. For many hundreds of years, the yeshivas were all kahila yeshivas. They were communal yeshivas. As opposed to today, from Valazhin and on, where they're, where they're not connected to a specific kahila, but rather they're an institution independent of the community. And the community yeshivas went down starting with Tachvetat, the 1648-1649 Chemel Niski massacres, which destroyed Kehila life. The Kehilas were weakened. It becomes even worse throughout the 17th and 18th centuries with the economic downturns, eventually the collapse of the Polish kingdom. Once the Polish kingdom, which was the patron of the Kehilas and kept it organized, was collapsing, so the Kehillahs themselves were weakened, especially economically, and once it's economically weakened, the communities can no longer support the yeshiva as an institution of the Kehillah itself. Yeshivas are closed left and right, especially after 1764, when the Polish kingdom closes down what's called the Vad Ha'arba Ha'aratzois, the Council of the Foreign Lands, the autonomous, self-governing uh, Jewish communal network of the entire kingdom of Poland, which included Lithuania, of course, at the time. And they closed down. They had this internal government, autonomy, which collected taxes, which organized the Kehilas, which had rabbinical leadership. It was like a big maetzes, as it were, of the time. And the Polish kingdom, for reasons of their own, which I'm not going to get into now, closes it down, simply shuts it down in 1764. So there's no super-organizational structure to run the Jewish communities and to make sure that there are yeshivas that are sustained within this framework. And with that collapse of that, there are no longer yeshivas. And if there's no yeshivas, then there's no Torah, there's no producing Torah, or very little of it. Rukhaim Belazhner and other G'dayli Yisrael of the time went to very extremes. They wrote it in their letters. Perhaps they're slightly exaggerating, but if we take their words at face value, it seems like there's a desolation of Torah, of Torah leadership, of raising a new generation in Torah because of all the above-mentioned reasons. And it seems like it's a very dire situation. So what Reb Chaim does, in light of everything we just said, is he opens a new chapter in how he sees it to oppose Hasidus. He's not writing cherims, he's not signing cherims. He's taking a whole different approach than his Rebbe, the Vilna Gaon. We're not fighting them, we're not destroying them, we're not getting rid of them, we're accepting the reality that they're here and they're part of the Jewish people and they're part of Kal Yisrael, and we're going to deal with it in a different way. And the way he decides to deal with it is to deal with it on two fronts, one ideological, intellectual, and the other one, educational. 
And the ideological intellectual is mainly expressed in his Sefer Nefesh Achayim, where he presents the non-Hasidic worldview. It's an answer to the Sefer Atanya of the Alter Rebbe and to the Hasidic movement in general, not specifically the Tanya. And he says, we're accepting the challenge. You presented a new worldview through Hasidus. I'm going to answer your challenge. That's what Chaim Velazhner is essentially saying. And I'm going to present my worldview. And ostensibly, he's presenting a worldview in a very conservative fashion. He's saying this is what traditional Judaism was always like. And really, Nefesh Chaim is a combination of conservatism, meaning per, to, uh, maintaining a certain status quo of traditional Jewish life, of Torah and rabbinic life. But on the other hand, he's also and directly answering the challenges of Hasidus by adding a whole new spiritual dimension to Yiddishkeit and basing all the ideas of non-Hasidic Yiddishkeit in Kabbalah, explaining what Kavana and Allah is, all his opposition, his ideological opposition to Hasidus about Eloikus and where is Hashem and Simtsum and Limud HaToyra and Kavana in Mitzvahs and Halacha, and he's it's a polemic, a work of polemics. He's, 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 he's opposing a certain worldview and presenting a new worldview instead. He's disputing them. He's having a controversy with them, but it's all in ideas. He's saying, what does Tayyar Lishma mean according to me? What does Dveikas mean according to me? Hasidus presented ideas in all these areas. Now I'm explaining what does it mean in our world. So it's a direct answer to everything that Hasidus presented pre- pre- presented as a challenge, and he answers that by giving a whole new worldview, very steeply and deeply based in Kabbalah, which was also a Chiddush. It's very deep, very esoteric, and that was that was one way of, of answering Hasidus. We're here to stay, both of us. Let's explain the two different systems, and I believe that my way is right, you believe your way is right, and this is what I have to say. And this is, this is what his way of doing it. Very popular Sefer. It's reprinted tens of times throughout the neck of that century. It's only printed after he dies. The son of Itzalavalajanah said that his father's Savo was to leave it, was to print it right away, to take care of it. And he, he actually took a bit of time. He had regret that he took a couple of years even to do it. He should have done it right away. But Reb Chaim second answer to Hasidus was his great educational work of opening the Valajan Yeshiva. He said, you know how we're going to we're going to present our worldview. We're going to open a yeshiva. We're going to solve all the problems at once where I'm going to espouse my chinuch and my Yiddishkeit and my supremacy of Torah study. Hasmada is the dominant feature in Valoshin. And, and, and the supremacy of Torah and, present, and presenting and providing leadership in Torah to the Jewish communities of Lithuania through the Valazhin Yeshiva. And this is going to be the crown jewel of the Torah-based society. And that's the second answer through education, through chinuch, and, uh, and it's not a kehila institution. And one day when we speak about the Velazhin Yeshiva, we'll see what the chiddush, what the novelty of the Velazhin Yeshiva was, and, um, and, um, uh, and what it brought, and why it's considered, to a certain extent, the mother of the modern yeshivas that we have till today. But it, in, it, in its base form, it was an answer to what Reb Chaim saw as a threat um, that Hasidus presented, and this is what his one of his solutions was to have this yeshiva that would uh, that would that would educate people towards his worldview of the way he saw Torah and Yiddishkeit. This was Yehuda Geber.
of Jewish History Soundbites, you can reach me at ygebss at gmail.com. Questions, comments, sources, to go to tours, to go to places like Valajan and other great places to see these people and hear their stories. You can subscribe now to Jewish History Soundbites on iTunes, Google Play, or Spotify. Don't miss an episode of our podcast. If you enjoy, give a good rating. Share it with your friends and family. You can follow us on Twitter at JSoundbites, and we hope you enjoy.